Hello, it's me, Athena Kablenu, popping up at the beginning of my podcast again. And it's the usual warning that I have to give every now and again to say the sound quality isn't quite um, what I would like it to be. What can I say? This is free content. It's self-produced and I'm not a very good producer. And I'm still getting to grips with this online recording thing because obviously people can't come to keep my company because of, um, well, we know why. Let's not let's not mention it anymore. We've all, we're all sick of it. Anyway. Quality of the sound, terrible. Quality of the conversation, sublime. I promise you, please put up with it. You will not even notice all the scratchiness. I call it scratchiness. I don't know what it is, but there's. it's weird. You won't notice it though, because the conversation, I promise you, is sublime. So enjoy. My name is Athena Kogenu, I'm a stand-up comedian, writer, broadcaster and podcaster, also a parent, which is great, but as you will know if you listen to this podcast, um, my child is still too young to say anything than the basics, bubbles, um, I want, no, and cry, so those aren't words that you can make sentences out of, so to keep my sanity and to keep myself, you know, working, I invite people around to keep my company. And today I haven't invited someone around because it's illegal and that would get me a big fine. But I am talking to Vicky Medemi. How are you, Vicky? I'm good. Yeah. Are yeah. you really good though? Do you know what? I think that question, how are you, has completely lost its meaning now. Because if I told you how I really was, this podcast would turn out very different from what you're hoping. I'm not, I have no hopes. Every time I've been called, <laughs> I have no idea well where I'm going to end up. One guy who's a really good friend of mine, I found out he's a fine artist. No idea. Oh, wow. Had no idea. So uh, this could turn into, you could tell me you're a serial killer. You could confess the crimes once committed um, as a youth. Um, you could, you, <laughs> anything, anything could happen. Feel free to, to feel free to, to just let, get it off your chest. I've struggled with that sentence, how are you? Because the qu- I am fine, but I, I'm filled with dread about the future. I can't perform stand-up until next year that's my job yeah <laughs> so and you're in the performing arts can you talk talk a bit about what you do because you've got I'm not even saying this you do genuinely have probably the best job of everybody I know <laughs> genuinely. so um I'm a circus artist uh, I trained as a circus artist I worked for years in different circuses and dance shows and in theatre and now I run a contemporary circus company Let's talk about the fact you're a circus artist. I'm going to ask the one question that all circus artists should be asked. Can you do a backflip? Of course. <laughs> well, I used to be able to do a backflip. I haven't done one for a while. <laughs> I am, I've just, it's one of those skills that I sort of think if someone could do a backflip, you don't need no GCSEs. Like that's, what more do you need in life? That's your, those are your qualifications. <laughs> Give this person uh, money. A lot of people could do backflips. You need a bit more than that in your in your back. How do you practice what do you do to eventually learn how to do one what's the steps of becoming a backflipper um so you, you get somebody you trust to to support you and you kind of learn the movement pathways and you repeat and event as you go the person who's supporting you kind of takes away the support bit by bit by bit and eventually you're just doing it so I can't make backflipping a, a, a lockdown skill. I, I need to have a, another person with me within proximity. Well, un, unless your daughter is a lot yeah. more mobile than <laughs> she appears to be at the moment, I'd wait until you can get into a proper training space. I would crush the child. It wouldn't. It would be worth it. 
Can we talk about how you got into circus? I know you probably talk about this a lot, um, but like, I, it's such. So I, I love the circus in a way that when I have the opportunity to go, I go and watch, and I'm always like anyone who knows what the circus is but isn't familiar with it. It's just all, all, all inspiring for me. It's mm-hmm. death-defying and it's, it's fantastic. But it's very difficult for me to look at it and think, oh, I want to do that because it feels so far away from my own physical ability. So how did you decide I want to get into circus? What, what was that thought process? Oh, wow. I, I kind of just fell into it. I hope not literally because obviously... That, that was a joke, but that was weak. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, I got into it kind of by accident. Um, I was studying at university to, to become a scientist and honestly, that had been my dream since I was a kid. I really wanted to kind of be a proper scientist with the lab coat, uh, doing research and, you know, maybe winning a Nobel Prize. But whilst I was at university, I ended up living across the street from this kind of group of feminists, circus, kind of free-living, wild women. And I just kind of completely fell in love with them. They were amazing, political, um, and they took me to their training space um, and I got onto the trapezes and they gave me some lessons and I was terrible. You know, I hadn't really ever done anything like that before, but there was something about it that just felt amazing and made me feel like I had the possibility of being superhuman so these corrupting feminists are the reason why we don't, we don't have a <laughs> damn feminist corona, right? We had you'd have invented that vaccine already, right? But you was too busy following these political <laughs> troublemakers. Um, can I just say that's one of the most romantic university stories I've ever heard? Like I was living across the road from these these kind of feminist political trailblazers who showed me the circus, and I went yeah. and I fell in love with it. Um, and then and so it started off maybe as a, as a hobby, and then you decided to pursue it um yeah you know, I come from a I come from an African family so you know there was never an option that I would do anything other than doctor lawyer scientist you know like a proper job um and I think when you come from a first generation immigrant family you you think really seriously about what you do with your life because you understand what being poor is um, so th- there wasn't really a thought in my head about pursuing a career as being a circus artist. Um, but it just it just kind of captured me. And every time I thought I would leave and do something else or go back to science or another career, I'd always find myself in a training space, kind of working on someone with a show and almost being like how did I get here again <laughs> what when you started was there what was did you find anything really uh, you said it was really did it and it was like really difficult but once you started to practice it and, and do it more was there anything that you found really hard that you thought I know I like it but I'm not like enjoying this particular aspect gosh um I mean it's it's physically challenging but the physical challenge isn't the hardest part about chewing, sorry, choosing a, a career in something that's kind of quite an unstable industry. I mean, you know it, you're a stand-up comedian. I think it was um, 
the whole lifestyle around it. So when you're training, you really commit to a lifestyle. You need to train all the time. And it becomes a bit of an obsession. So I wouldn't go anywhere unless I knew I was able to access a training space. You know, so for years I didn't even think about going on holiday because it would be a break in my training. Um, and it wasn't an easy space to make a, a living in. You know, there was, it was always a bit of a struggle between how you earn an income when you're following your passion. Yeah, I think that's the eternal struggle, especially when it's something that's considered maybe like almost like a bit niche. You know, if you tell someone you're, um, I don't know, an actor, then, you know, you've got theatre, you've got TV, you've got drama. But if you mm-hmm. tell someone you work in circus, people's minds don't have as much to latch on to in terms of, well, what do people exchange money for in terms of seeing circus performers, right? Um, yeah, what, absolutely. Uh, what did you ever do? Did you have, like, a side hustle to, to help you out? We were in, like, court <laughs> in the day in, like, trapeze at night. So, bizarrely enough, my side hustle, I had, I had two. So, whilst I was at university, I worked for um, a wine retailer called Odd Bins, <laughs> and I trained to be a sommelier. Shut up. Do you remember exactly what I said, you know? I find out all these things people know. Let's talk about this. Forget, forget circus. You know about wines. Amazing. Yeah. So you trained to be... Trained. I trained. So I would often do some of that kind of work on the side. And then um, I also did a master's in computer, so computer science. So I did a little bit of a side hustle in database design. You design data, but knowing a little bit about databases, I'm purely nothing about it. I, I've just commissioned people to do it. I know, I know, I know how hard it that is. Um, it is hard and it is boring. It's it is boring, but the, once it's done, it the the possibility the problems that you can solve with a good database are um, uh, amazing. And I'm guessing so that you know people get really excited about databases. I get it. I I'm only one of those people is because I've worked in places who haven't. I've worked with people who haven't understood that and their data's a mess yeah. and it's just a nightmare trying yeah. to fix it because they haven't even stored the data correctly in the first place to fix it. I'm also excited because I'm highly confident that you now use Microsoft Access. Yes, I do. Yeah, which is like, that's you, you, you're either a stonemason or you can use Microsoft Access. Those are the two things that make you a partic- part of a particularly secretive sect as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> there, should, there should be little rings and a secret handshake for people who can use Microsoft Access. Anyway, I, di- I digress. Um, this makes you a very resourceful person. Um, this is, I've been, we've been going for 12 minutes and um, I just feel like um, there was probably a hell of a lot more that I don't know about what's got, what you've got in your brain. Um, probably. I mean, that's one of the things that's kind of characterised all the stupid, stupid choices <laughs> I've made in my life is that I've always kind of followed what is um, exciting to me and what is um, a space of curiosity. That doesn't feel so it's like... kind of led me to lots of weird places. That doesn't feel like um, a stupid thing at all. When you say weird places, does anything come to mind? So you think, wow, I can't believe my nose led me to this place. <laughs> um, oh, God. So many things, Athena. So many things. And, oh, you know, I need to be careful because, you know, one day I might want to have a political career. So <laughs> that, that I would love for you to be a politician. I always think the issue with politicians is they've never, they haven't lived. 
they've gone to That's university true. and they've studied PPE, not the PPE you need now, the useless PPE. Um, and they've come out of university and they've interned and then, and then they've become a counsellor or they've worked for an MP's office and then they're going to parliament and then they tell mm. us how to live our lives. It's like, you lost your virginity last week, mate. Who are you talking to? <laughs> like, not that it's like, it's fine away. I don't want to virginity shame anyone. You can lose your virginity whenever. Absolutely. This is what, what, what I'm, you get what I'm trying to communicate. These people I get it. I, I think it's, it's people who've never really had to struggle for anything. Yeah. You know, and they may be assumption that everybody has kind of lived a similar life to them and I think the one thing that I've gained as as an experience is kind of walking in all these different paths I've seen the way that people live in different circumstances and I make no assumptions about how people um, live and survive these days yeah it's so that's why right Vicky Vermeer um, done you've got my <laughs> you've got you've got my vote I did my last Edinburgh show about leadership and it, it the premise was basically what, what we're talking about now. The whole premise was I'm, I th- I've always said I would probably be quite a good leader or I'd probably be quite good in politics. I care about I can people. see that. Yeah, I care about people. Um, I'd like to think that I could string a sentence together um, and I'm quite practical and progressive. So I'm more interested in what's a solution rather than what would be the dogmatic or ideological thing, right? However... Mm. My my closet is so full of skeletons. Like literally, <laughs> it's it's like a it's like a grave site. I should be a muse- It should be a museum or something. It's 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 ludicrous. Archaeologists would just like never have to work again. That would Can be I just cool. say, Boris Johnson doesn't even know how many kids he's got. He's a white, all right. He's an old rich white guy. Okay, he can do <laughs> what he likes. All right. And the funny thing, what you, it's so funny because when I did my show I was pregnant so the whole joke was like and at the time I mean it's all worked out in the end but at the time like I was single you know I'd only known the guy for about two months when I got knocked up so the whole yeah. thing was like that was the name of my political coffin right like I'm I'm, preg- I'm pregnant on the stage going well that's the end of it isn't it really this is not gonna happen for me <laughs> and at the same time um, Boris Johnson I think had had or there'd been conversations at, at, the, at that point about some child that had come out the midwork or whatever um, yeah, but I'm I'm a woman, right? So I can't say, oh my god, what a surprise! Like this, <laughs> I, I had no idea. Like, so that's that's something that I always struggle with. Um, that it, when people, it's really weird that people kind of deny white privilege when it's kind of there in front of us every yeah. day. That doesn't mean that every white person benefits from it in the same way, but the fundamental no. core. But that's that's not the purpose, and that's you know. That's a deliberate misunderstanding of what you're talking about when you're talking about that kind of privilege. It's about systems, not individuals. And, you know, what is that phrase? Tyranny is the absence of nuance. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And people, you're absolutely right, they willfully misinterpret what they're saying to perhaps play their part in maintaining the structure. Maybe they don't know what they're doing. You know, maybe that's that's in the instruction book that all white people get. <laughs> like, deny privilege <laughs> at all costs. You know, even if you're being tortured, <laughs> deny it. <laughs> it's it's really interesting because I think it's it's an unconscious thing. So so my partner is white, and we get into sometimes these really deep conversations. Um, and he's he's, he's amazing. You know, James. I know. Yes, I know James. Yes. You know. He is the gentlest, kind of most open human being that I know. 
that even there are times when I'm talking to him where he'll make excuses for things and people. It's just like this divergence in understanding of the world that's based on experiences that I've had, he's never had, and will never see. Actually, can I tell you a story about us going on a holiday together? Absolutely. A couple of years ago, we, we decided we were going to go on a holiday, and that was our first kind of big holiday together. And he was kind of busting out all these holiday destinations that we can go to. And each one, I was a bit like, mm, not sure. Not because I didn't want to go there. But you know what it is to be a black woman travelling in places where not a lot of other black people are. The stories I have from Morocco, <laughs> Tunisia, Turkey. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And he was like, you're making a big deal out of this. It's nothing. Let's just go on holiday and we'll have an amazing time. Two days in Vietnam after being stared at, touched, people stopping to take photos of us, people asking us if we could breed. He was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and what's really frustrating, two things that are frustrating. I do know James and he is lovely. I can, I can co-sign this. She's not making, it's yeah. not bias. He's, he's a lovely dude. Um, and if the loveliest dudes are like resistant to our testimony, imagine what the cunts are like. <laughs> we've, got, we've got no chance. Like if the but, nicest people, you know, are like but struggling. We, talk, we like, talked yeah. about it and it was literally because he'd never experienced anything like that before. And me telling him what I'd experienced, he was like, this can't be real. Yeah. You know, how can this be real? Um, but to be walking alongside me and see it and that constant, constant kind of defence you have to put around yourself. And it's not because people are mean. They just, they just haven't seen anyone like you before or regularly and have questions and expect you to answer them. But what's really interesting, and I, 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 I don't obsess about it, but I think about it a lot. I have this theory that ev- I think every everybody's got a race, and everybody to a certain extent gets judged based on what their race is, whether or not that's racism or not. Is based on power dynamics. But generally speaking, like if you're a white man in Japan, people are going to be attracted to you because um, it's a stereotype that oh, you know, white guys are really hot. <laughs> but it's like like the space occupied by white dudes in Japan is like the space occupied by black men in a lot of other places. It's like really, yeah. really odd. So everyone suffers from it. But I've always, I will maintain that Africans, men and women, both or both genders and everyone else, we just have it worse. Do you know what I mean? Like if you wherever you come from or whoever you are, I don't think you have the same experience as what it is to be African. Like I went on holiday to Turkey with um, my one of my best friends who's Indian. Mm. And we went with her family because they travel on holiday together. And uh, I went along one time because I know her family quite well. And yeah. they could walk around Turkey without any, like we were in Istanbul, which is a cosmopolitan place, right? Yeah. Where East and West meet. It, they could walk around Turkey, like this place, and not have any problem. I couldn't, I, I'd leave the hotel, I'd get marriage yeah. proposals, people throwing camels at me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> go to markets and I just remember thinking but we're both different shades of brown like we're both yeah. different types of other I can't explain this, this isn't going anywhere I'm, there's something about Africanness that seems to just make people go a bit nuts just one other anecdote um, last year I was in um, 
Barcelona with my partner. This is Barcelona, yeah, Barcelona, <laughs> yeah. and we were on a bench like with a with our with the kids, and this, this couple walks past us and is like, "Oh, can we take a picture?" Um, and I thought they wanted us to oh, take a wow. picture with them. No, they said, "Can we no. take your picture?" They wanted to yeah. take a picture, and, and he was like, "Yeah," thinking, it was, "You know." Oh my and god! And I just said, "This is highly offensive." Like uh, in the end, I tell you what. When I was in um, when I was in China, because I worked a lot in Asia quite recently, I will be appearing in so many people's holiday snaps. This random black woman, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Sometimes people would ask me for the photo, and before I'd even said anything, they'd be posing, kind of pointing. You know that pose where somebody's pointing two fingers, yeah, yeah, yeah. at you, yeah, yeah. And I'd just be like, what? And then sometimes they wouldn't even ask. And you'd see somebody kind of pretending to do a selfie in front, in front of you. And the camera is just kind of drifting to the left. And I was like, what do these people want pictures of me for? It's And, they don't, and that's the crazy thing. They don't want pictures of, of us. They want pictures of an African capital A, which is this kind of objectified concept which they've heard about and they've probably seen on TV playing on TV, yeah, and rapping. And like, I think what happens is within a lot of spaces around the world that are non-black, African and African-descended people are, are either represent, represented as like Michelle Obama and Michael Jordan and Bob Marley or mm. they don't exist at all, right? They're like, we're like saints. Oh my God, they must think we're all famous. Well, it's, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's like when you see um, another African, you've only ever seen Bob Marley and um, Denzel, maybe, mm. and you're like, oh my gosh, it's... I mean, I went to... When I was in Morocco, Morocco is in Africa. I don't need to yeah. say this, it's obvious. It's in Africa. And everyone yeah. went, Bob Marley's sister, Bob Marley's mm-hmm. sister. And I just thought, this, like... First of all, like, pick another one. What about Rihanna? Like, you know, like, what about Janet Jackson? But second of all, like, that's ridiculous. I'm in my continent. You know, I'm in the continent I, I come from. I know. Bizarre. I guess the worst thing for me is that they always pick, like, African or, or African-American um, celebrities to kind of refer to me as. And they're always the ones that I'm like, mm, no. I don't look like her. Do you know, like the one that was just like, oh, she's she's a little bit chubby. What are you saying? Oh, my. Like, you know, oh, they yeah, never pick. Her. They you never pick like Beyonce <laughs> or Rihanna. It's always like somebody's a, a little bit to the left of attractive. It's, it, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and it's and, they, and they're doing it on purpose too. They're absolutely doing it. Absolutely oh, doing I it hope so. Um, but it's but it is. It's that interesting thing where you're like, this is racism, but <laughs> but this is also, there's also something else here that I'm reacting to. Yeah, it's racism, but also like, can you not do like racism that compliment me at the same time? And make it sexy. Yeah, can't you flatter me? <laughs> the circus world um, probably isn't the most diverse of spaces. Um no. Um, well, it's, it's interesting. Like, circus is one of those art forms that some form of it exists in every part of the world, you know. 
it's an art form that's about humans doing extraordinary things with their bodies, you know, and in every country that exists in some way. But when people talk about circus circus, they think for one of two things. So they're either thinking about classic circus, which is very European, um, or they're thinking about that kind of Cirque du Soleil-style circus, which emerged out of Canada, which still has a very white European aesthetic. Um, I was talking to somebody quite recently about diversity in circus, and quite often when you see black or brown people, um, particularly in commercial shows, they tend to be performing some kind of ethnicity. It's like people can't just have them on stage being whoever they are in an authentic way. They want to see them represent some kind of national dress. Um, and that's what I've always worked against with my company. So I have a company. Um, it's primarily so that I can make the work that I'm excited about and support other black and brown circus artists have a space where they can be authentically themselves. Yeah, and what you're describing is really frustrating because it happens um, in every creative industry, I think, like mm. that pressure to... Um, if the, the denial of white people having a race and the insistence that everyone else has a race and that is the space within which they have to work in. So you have to have this accent, you've got to dress like this, you've got to dance like this, or, yeah. or, or whatever. You are challenging that with with your your company, um, which is important. Absolutely. But what I would hate to, to think is that your space was the only space in which in which this was probably being rectified. Do you, do you think service in general is improving, or do you think your space is is like uh, an oasis? I think there is a general improvement. So that idea of representation is starting to be a conversation that's had a little bit more in the circus world. But it's it's not moving forward anywhere near as quickly as it should. And people are not really addressing it directly in the way that they should. You know, there's this kind of idea that circus is a space for meritocracy. Like, the only thing that people care about is what you can do. If you have the skills, you'll always succeed. And that's not true. It's not been my experience. I've been in lots of situations where I know that I haven't received a job because they wanted a chorus and they were walking down the line of the casting line with nine blonde, skinny girls and one tall, black, muscular girl and just thought, she's not going to fit. So it's that challenge of when you're in a space where people think it's a meritocracy and people think they're already liberal thinking that they don't look around them and see all of the missing artists and think maybe there's something systematically wrong. They kind of think, well, obviously, they just are not good enough or they exactly. don't want to be here. You just hit now on the head. Um... So I remember I had this conversation with somebody once when my career was starting to kind of push forwards a bit. And there was one diversity initiative that gave me an award of just like a little bit of money to do something. And that person came to me and said, this is really unfair. You have just gotten given this thing just because you're black. 
and I've got nothing out of that. This same person um, came into the industry because they were related to somebody who was a quite a well-known, you know, within the circuit. They have contacts that I would never dream of, of having and a network that I would never dream of having. They get jobs that are never advertised because people don't really advertise that work when they know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody. So I was talking to somebody who had access to things because of a relationship, who was questioning my right to something else because that moment of privilege I had was based on something that was very visible about me. But the privilege that they had was fairly invisible. I would go so far to say their privilege is very visible. People think they're entitled to it, so they ignore it. I mean, there's nothing more visible than I'm related to someone and I therefore get loads of work because of it. But what what happens is people are like, yeah, but that's that's fine because they deserve it. And if you ask them why, the answer in their brain is they're white, but they'd never say it out loud. You know, that is, I think my the opinion. answer... The answer in this person's brain, and like this is a person who came out and told me that I'd taken advantage of the system because of my skin colour. I think that what was going on in his brain was that he didn't see the advantage that he had because it was like it's like a fish being in water. Yeah. Something that he'd always been around. So he couldn't understand why that was a privilege. And it was, it was just this really weird conversation that left me with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder for a while, feeling the need to prove my worth. Um, and, and that is a kind of ty- tyranny as well. It, it definitely is. And like my argument is always things that are like to do with positive action and affirmative action, the, the real misunderstanding is that, oh, these things were invented like for us. Positive action mm. and affirmative action have been around since the beginning of time. It's just they've not benefited us before. You know, yeah. this person had benefited from affirmative action based on the fact that he has family and he's related to the industry and he has a name and that's his act. But we've never called it that. But if we yeah. just called it all positive action, like, oh, actually, this happened to you. I always use the, um, the example of football managers to talk about this. Because I think it's mm. always it's a boring way to talk about positive action. But when you see a, a, a manager take a football club down the toilet and then get another job, and it's like, <laughs> but you just flushed that job. You know, you flushed your last club down the toilet. Or when you see a manager yeah. get a job with no experience, but they want to be given a chance. Well, that's an affirm- that's affirmative action, isn't it? There's no qualifications yeah, here. There's no track record. So if I get a job based on no qualifications, no track record, why... Why are you calling it affirmative action for me? It wasn't for that guy. It wasn't for Phil Neville, you know. Yeah. So uh, I use football language to talk to racists because I tend to understand football language. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good tip. <laughs> but um, I'm going to pick that up. You should use the football analogy. Then I'll be, oh my gosh, why did we keep employing Steve McCann? Um, and, and, and whatnot it's, and it's a really good way to exemplify it and if, even if they don't understand it for a minute and then, and then forget about it talk a bit more about your company because I you I had the pleasure 
of meeting some members. I think there were members of your company that I met when I hosted that show yeah. for you. Um, and it was the most fun night ever. Um, I think I might have been a bit terrible because I was having too much fun. Um, you were fab! Oh, bless you. And it was a show just no, like really good. you put on a beautiful showcase of of artistry and people were performing stiff snippets of shows, either work in progress or final, um, at, at theatre and it was packed out for the circus fans. Um, and yeah, talk a bit about that night and what you were trying to do and uh, and a bit more about like what's happened next after that happened. That was a, a showcase that we put on. So we were working with a company called Certain Blacks, um, run by a guy called Clive Little, who is a little bit like my um, my partner in crime for, for certain things. And it had come out of a number of conversations that Clive and I had had. So Clive is a, is a, a black man, um, and he's been kind of working around circus and carnival and outdoor arts for years. And we were having this recurring conversation about people thinking there's a lack of BAME or diverse talent. And, you know, we were thinking, actually, it's not a lack. It's just the mechanisms of support aren't there and the mechanisms of making these artists visible aren't there. So we thought we're just going to put on a shit-hot showcase of this talent. But before just kind of throwing people out in front of um, an audience, we're going to spend a year or so working with them to develop their artistry, to develop their work, to make sure it's the best that it can possibly be um, when we present them at the showcase. So there was a there was one piece that I was working with an artist directing her show, which was a solo piece, and then there were a number of other artists that we had mentored and supported, or or there was one that we'd known about who we hadn't really worked with, but um but wanted to, and we brought them together to put on this night, and it wasn't just about black performers or Asian performers. It was about presenting people a vision of actually what diversity really is. You know, this idea that um, we're all in minorities. But when you actually look at all of those identities that are marginalised in some way, they form the majority of the population. So we had uh, a visually impaired aerialist um, Amelia Cavallio, who's created this kind of drag persona called Tito Bone. Um, we had Hawk and Sadiq, who are this Chinese pole duo, um, who are working around themes. Um, so Sadiq is from an Islamic background, um, but he came out maybe five or six years ago as really exploring what it means to be gay and Muslim using the vehicle of Chinese pole. So all of this is work that for us firmly sits outside the mainstream. And that's the world in which we operate, you know, everything that's outside the mainstream. And it was an amazing night and everybody had a great time and learned something new and saw something exciting and realised that the world, the circus world is bigger than they think it is. Oh, like like massively, massively shown. And I, I learned I learned loads and met some of the most wonderful, most joyful people 
um, and flexible people as well. Some of the stretching I saw <laughs> in the in the green room, I was like, "Come on, keep it social." Do you know what I mean? Like, just, yeah. I feel I feel very inadequate. That's that's how we say hello to each other. <laughs> just, <laughs> you walk into a room, you drop into a split. What are your dreams for circus? What 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 does the world look like for circus in five years' time? That makes you sit, that would make you sit back in your armchair and drink that posh wine you know so much about and think this I've done good. Mm. Um, you know what? It's it's really difficult now with everything that's going on. Um, I think the the world of the arts is is really struggling. So so dreaming is is kind of quite a challenge at the moment. Um, but the things that I would like to see for the circus sector is I'd like to see three things. I'd like to see more spaces for people to be able to create um, spaces where they can explore and experiment. Quite a lot of my practice is around thinking about not just making shows. We make shows that kind of tour around the country and internationally that are about entertaining people and kind of um, giving them that moment of inspiration and entertainment. But I'm really interested in what circus can do for the world. So one strand of the work that we're doing at the moment is we are taking circus into care homes And we're working with staff and residents and family members of the residents in the home to look at the ways in which circus can not just entertain them, but find ways to communicate, um, you know, using object manipulation and juggling to to moments with people who are nonverbal. You know, that kind of passing of an object between people is, is a really, really beautiful thing. And there was this lovely moment in one of the care homes where we were exploring kind of contact and lifting work with staff members because the way that they lift residents is um, really medicalised and formal. And we work with a practice which is about kind of using um, lifting and, you know, we work with a way that we find a way to build trust really, really quickly through touch so we can do extraordinary things between um, two bodies. So we were looking at giving the staff tools to kind of touch and lift in different ways that were perhaps less, um, sorry, less less impersonal. Um, and the most amazing thing that came out of the first residency that we did in the care home was the manager of the care home came to us afterwards and said, this program has made me realise that I've been underestimating the people that I'm looking after. Um, Because everybody came into the process as a beginner. And with Circus, you never know where the talent is going to appear. Um, So you had residents and their carers trying to learn how to juggle. And carers suddenly seeing these residents kind of streaming ahead of them in kind of learning these new skills where they were struggling and realizing that um you know that, that there is so much more to a person than you can see on the surface it's exactly what you were saying using circus as a, as a tool to communicate like what better way to communicate the fact that you you have purpose and the capacity to learn than basically telling the people who work for you i can juggle yeah. and you can't like, yeah exactly the really capacity to learn it's a, it's a beautiful thing yeah it's the capacity to learn the capacity to do something new and also the need to have some element of risk yes you know as part of how you live you know as um, as human beings 
we negotiate risk all the time and that's you know part of the pleasure of life and you choose your level of risk accordingly of course um but when you suddenly got duty of care over looking after somebody who you see as fragile how do you allow them to have that kind of agency to take safe risks and feel like they're kind of engaged in in life in a normal way I find that concept quite moving to be honest because it, it hadn't you when you put older people into care you're literally you're not thinking about them thriving you're just thinking of them eating being entertained a bit and going to bed but I've always thought we don't look after older people well enough anyway yeah I think we're, we're not very good at kind of thinking about how we deal with um, getting older as individuals. But we're also just not good at thinking how, as a society, we take care of the older people. Actually, not just take care of the older people, but also enable them to live purposeful and useful lives for as long as possible. Which is is exactly what we should be doing, you know, rather than kind of Mm. checking people out and saying, okay, now you get to sit here and stare out the window all day. That's not fulfilling at, at all. No, not at all. Um, on that note, I'd like to I'd like to end with a very important question um, for you. This is a question that I can only ask you. I've never asked it to anyone else. No one else is qualified to answer it. <laughs> you're qualified. Um, so this evening, I've not eaten yet, but I'm going to be having omelette and chips for dinner. Um, what wine should I be accompanying? <laughs> okay, so your, your omelette and chips are going to be kind of containing a fair amount of fat. You're going to want something citrusy, not too citrusy, to cut through that. Do you like sweet wines? I'm not the biggest fan of sweet wines. I'm, I, I would say medium sweet is I can I can just about manage. Yeah, I would probably go for something like a Gewurztraminer um, that's just on the edge of sweet. So it's got a really kind of floral flavour, but with kind of pear and citrus tones underneath. Would that be an old world? I think that will go wine? really well with is the that, chips. Is that an old world wine? Yes, it's a European wine. Yeah, German. <laughs> She's making this up. Um, I, mean, <laughs> I, I just thought ask ask her the question. I bet she sounds intelligent. Ask her now. <laughs> um, I'm I'm fully expecting from now on. Every time you sit down from a meal, you'll be texting me saying, um, "What wine was this?" We only have one bottle in the house. It's a dumb question for me to ask, and it's a red. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually like I've got a wine cellar. I don't have a wine. I've literally got one bottle left over from Christmas. I've not even touched yet. Um, when we're out of quarantine, I'm going to take you wine shopping. Oh, girl, you st- that's a, I'm writing that down, and I'm going to yeah, definitely. I'm at, yeah, I'm going to remind you of that. that yeah, that would be wonderful. I know very little about wines, other than I have this thing called. Is it has it got drink a bit knockback ability? That's what I used to say. Oh yeah, that's got good knockback ability. <laughs> that was my. Are wine. you one of these people that drinks wine to get drunk? No. Or I'm do not, you want to no, have a taste I'm actually, experience? I'm actually not a big a big drinker. I should I should be kinder to myself. I'm not a big drinker at all, and I do <laughs> enjoy um, wine that tastes good. But I don't have good knowledge of like what I couldn't guess if the wine was good based on what the label says or. Okay, we'll sort that out. I'll I'll give you a a little tip for red wine. Okay. Um, If you pick up the bottle, underneath the bottle, there's kind of like a dimple. 
if you've got a bottle with quite a deep dimple so that you can hold the bottle from the base, put your thumb in the dimple and hold it steady, it's likely to be a reasonable wine. Oh. That counts for reds only. That's good because I'm a red wine drinker. So it's not going to be one of those wines that leave my mouth all red, leave my teeth all no, red. No, 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 no. of them ones. Okay. That's, that's good to know. Vicky, um, this has been a pleasure. A genuine pleasure. My only regret is that I'm not here to reward you with, with plantain and, and um, the one bottle of wine that I have in my house to offer you. Um, <laughs> that would have probably disgusted I'm, you. I'm gutted about the plantain, but not about the wine. All right, well... Um, when you when we go wine shopping, we're going to round it off with a bit of, with a plate of fried plantain and shitter. I yeah. guarantee it. Yes. That was Vicky Amedeme. Didn't I tell you the conversation would be sublime? It really was. Thank you, Vicky, for coming on to my podcast. And look, I always find out about the hidden talents that my friends have. Not only is she a circus performer who can do a backflip, she's a sommelier, she can design databases. I'm very much looking forward to going wine shopping and plantain eating when this is over. Something to look forward to for sure. My name's Athena Kapleni. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the podcast, tell your friends about it, share comment you can find me on twitter and instagram i'm around i'm easy to find i don't hide on the internet so yeah get in touch and it will be nice to hear from you i hope you've enjoyed it and we'll catch up next time